Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here. And a special uh, Mother's Day to my mom. So glad you're here. And my wife. Um, But, you know, I'm also mindful that there are people in this church body who may not have kids who deserve that gratitude just as much as the moms because of how they lovingly care for those around them just as any mom would. So let's extend it to them as well. Um, I think they are due that uh, appreciation. As we uh, begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. If I were to ask you to give me a synonym for joy, what word comes to mind for you? What's another word that describes that same basic emotion as joy? I just saw your lips. You said happiness, right? That's, that's probably the most common response to that question. Happiness and joy are often seen as synonyms, interchangeable. In fact, if you look up happy in the dictionary, one of the synonyms listed is the word joy. But when we consider that question from a biblical perspective, we actually find that those two words describe two very different realities. And we know that that's true just by the fact of, of, of frequency alone, depending on what your translation is. If you were to look up the word happy in the Bible, you're going to find that it is used about 30 times. The word for joy is used over 300 times. And so from a biblical perspective, joy has a much deeper spiritual significance than happiness does. And we all know some of the reasons that that might be the case. For example, happiness often uh, reflects our response to the circumstances around us, our immediate environment. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I know for me, if you were to drop me in the wilderness with a backpack and a fly rod, those are ingredients for instant happiness in my life, right? In fact, I was so longing for that happiness this weekend that I uh, set up my hammock in the backyard, got out my sleeping bag, and slept in my sleeping bag in the hammock that night and was totally happy until 3 a.m. when the automatic sprinklers came on. (laughs) Didn't think about that one. I wasn't happy anymore. I was just wet. Right? My conditions changed, and it changed my emotion altogether. I came in, and I was madder than a hornet, and Terry laughed at me, and I was like, what's so funny about this? (laughs) But joy can exist even when the external circumstances around us are not all that great. That's why James can write and say, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Right? Or when Paul says, and this one's just amazing me, he says, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Isn't that interesting? I don't know about you, but I don't look at trials and afflictions in my life as ingredients for instant happiness. And so one of the distinctions that we might make between joy and happiness is that happiness is dependent on our current circumstances Joy exists because of something yet future, something outside of what we currently experience. And I want us to think about that for a moment because I believe that's the heart of the issue that we need to understand. Our happiness is grounded in our present reality. When life is good, I'm good. I'm happy. I'm in my hammock. And it's great until those circumstances change and then 
I'm not happy anymore. But joy is not dependent upon what is. The actual life of joy is in the hope of things yet to come. Because as Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, if my joy is dependent upon the the circumstances of this world, my present reality, he says, then we are of all men most to be pitied. But he then, the writer of Hebrews would say that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember? For the joy set before Him. See, even Jesus found His joy in things yet future, namely, what He would accomplish so that He might have a relationship with you and I. That's why He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Our joy in this life is made possible because of our hope and belief in things yet to come. Now, it's important for us to understand because joy, as you might have guessed, is a very central part of our passage this morning. It's behind what is the the culminating event in the entire book of Nehemiah. Everything that we've learned and walked through together comes to a, a climax in our passage this morning is the the people of God gather together in a spirit of worship and praise and their joy in the Lord is at the heart of their worship that's why it's important to understand so before we look at that together let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer God we uh, come to you grateful for your love your patience your mercies that are new every morning. And we recognize that there are things in our current circumstances that rob us of our joy, that steal our hope. And so this morning, I pray that, that we just avail ourselves to you, that we take a risk and put a trust in you to see if perhaps the word that you've revealed might speak to our heart in a way that restores our joy brings hope in our life based on your promises that are forever true. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear as we enter into your word this morning. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in our study so far, we've kind of followed the people of of, uh, the, the Jewish people from the captivity of Babylon as they've traveled back to the city of Judah. They've rebuilt the temple by this time. They rediscovered the truth of God's Word. We see that under Nehemiah's leadership, they have now rebuilt the wall. And and in many cases, they have rededicated their lives and the lives of their families to to following the Lord. As we looked at last time, the the Sabbath has become sacred. And as a result, uh, worship has become central in the lives of these people. They've begun to serve faithfully in ministry as a a reflection of their devotion to the Lord. The city of Jerusalem has really regained its prominence in the lives of God's people. But as we enter into our passage this morning, it still remains mostly unpopulated. And we're going to look at how that begins to change. So if you haven't already turned there, turn to Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. And if you'll follow along with me as I read, 
It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all those men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of of Solomon's servants. We get an idea from these three short verses that there were those who voluntarily agreed to to move into the the city of Jerusalem. These residents mainly included the, the leaders of the people. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Jerusalem is a capital city, and very naturally, that's where the, the leadership typically resides, is in that capital city. But it tells us that almost everyone else remained in the, the cities that surrounded them, on, on their own land, their own property. And apparently, they were pretty content to stay there, which is why they had to cast lots to determine who would be required to move into the city and who could stay where they were. Now we hear that and we need to understand that the drawing of lots was not like drawing the short straw. They weren't playing some game of rock, paper, scissors, right? To see who has to stay and who has to go. Because the drawing of lots had a deep spiritual significance to these people. In fact, it was, it was a practice that all the people understood as, as acceptable in, in determining God's will for their life. And Nehemiah knew that that was the case, which is why he instituted this practice at this time so that no one could look at him as a person and say, he's making me do something that I really don't want to do. As hard as it may be for us to grasp, these people trusted sincerely that, that God walked, walked, worked through this process to reveal His will to them. And so when their name and the name of their family was drawn, they followed obediently as a response to the, what they believed God's direction for their life was. It was the way God revealed Himself to these people. That's why in verse 2 it says that the people blessed those who, who volunteered. I believe that's including those who willingly volunteered and those who volunteered when their name was drawn. Because they recognized that what they were doing was good and right to follow God's will for their life. And as you can see, it was just a small percentage. Only one-tenth moved inside the city of Jerusalem, inside the walls that had been rebuilt. Nine-tenths remained in all the the cities that surrounded them. And as we saw, they they lived on their own property, as verse 3 indicates. As I read that passage, I kind of paused when I came to that statement because I wondered if that was the heart of the issue. (laughs) You see, they were on their own property. They had their own land, their own fields, their own animals. But when you moved to Jerusalem, you had to to sacrifice a lot of those things. In fact, you became somewhat dependent upon those who lived outside of the city and had their own land and access to all these things because you couldn't simply have all those things inside the, the limited space of the neighborhood inside Jerusalem. Now granted, it was a holy city, as it says, It was the center of of worship for God's people. But isn't it easier for them and for us to just stay on our own land? Would most of us prefer the security of our own 
personal property where we have our stuff and everything that we might need for ourselves and, and for our family as opposed to, to sacrificing some of that to go live in dependence upon God and, and God's people? Of course, that would be equally as true for us as it is for them. And even though we no longer draw lots, that's not how we determine God's will. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God living within us, right? And that Spirit of God prompts the hearts of His people as that will is revealed and God's people come around and they confirm as they did in our passage, yes, that is the good and right will of God. You should go and do. The question is, will you choose to stay on your own land? Or will you consider it a privilege to follow in obedience to God's will? It's a good question to ask. Because God's still moving in the hearts of His people. His purpose is still being carried out in the world. The question is, are you Russell? Are you Brandon? Are you Scott? Are you willing to go? It's incredibly relevant to where we live and work today. Because we like our stuff. So we just need to ask ourselves, would, be we, would be, we be willing to go? And consider it a privilege, not reluctantly. But these people said, this is good. You're following God's will. We encourage you to do so. It should be considered that. Well, well the verses that follow, as you look at verse 4 and then all the way to, to chapter 12, verse 26, it talks about those who were willing to go. And it names them specifically so that we understand who it was that had a very special part in God's redemptive plan. These were the people who were willing to go. Repopulating the city is the the final step as they now come to what is the, the climax of this biblical narrative, this biblical account. And what happens next will be a dedication of the city wall that has been rebuilt. And what we'll see is a celebration of epic proportions. I know we were talking earlier uh, in between, or before the first service and how busy May is, right? I mean, there's banquets, there's concerts, there's all kinds of stuff that are going on, and they all take time. I know you guys, the Borings, were involved in your deal and preparing for that banquet, and, and you can just imagine when you read this account what it must have been like to pull this thing off because it was incredible. Let's look at it together. Chapter 12, we'll start reading in verse 27. I'm going to skip around a little bit to give the the heart of what's being communicated, so just follow along with me. I'll start in verse 27. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophilites, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields, from Geba and from Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The, The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates and the wall. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I pointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall towards the refuse gate, 
And then go down to verse 38. After having listed some of those people involved in what he just said, he goes on in verse 38 and says, The second choir proceeded to the left, while I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the furnaces, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials with me. Let me just pause there and get a picture of what's going on. Some of you may be wondering, okay, how did all these people get on top of the wall, right? I think most of us have in our minds this kind of precarious balancing on, on top of a real thin wall, right? made me think of uh, watching Courtney and Michaela and some of those girls that are involved in gymnastics when they do the balance beam. I did a little research just to make sure my facts were right. That balance beam is about four inches wide, okay? So that's not what they're doing. They're not balancing on a four-inch wide. In fact, archaeologists have discovered a lot of what was a part of that wall that Nehemiah built and there were places, on average, that is about 25 feet wide. That's how wide this wall is. Okay? So that's how all these people got up there. So it would be kind of like walking down a city street that just so happened to be suspended about 30 feet in the air. That's how high the wall was around Jerusalem. So you kind of get a picture of what's going on here. Nehemiah describes two large groups that proceed in opposite directions. And these large groups are actually, as he says, two great choirs. And it must have been a lot of people because it said that they came from all the surrounding cities. So it wasn't just the people in Jerusalem. If you lived in the province of Judah, you were a part of this celebration. Everybody came into the the city for this dedication of the wall. These two great choirs climbed on top of the wall with all the people that proceeded with them. They had instruments that were accompanying them as they moved in opposite directions and made their way around the wall. Can you imagine what what a scene this must have been? Get a real picture of it in verse 33. I want you to look, 43, I want you to look at that with me. It says, And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. If you look at this single verse in the original text, the word joy is used five times in this one verse. Five times. And I want you to keep that in mind based on the context of what we said in the beginning this morning. Their worship was most certainly a reflection of their gratefulness of what God had done by delivering them from their enemies. But guess what? Their enemies still surrounded them. They were grateful how He provided for them in the midst of a famine. You'll remember that was an issue that they encountered. But guess what? The famine continues. So these people were definitely praising God for things that were happening around them, but not because their circumstances were perfect. There had to be something about their joy that looked for something yet future, something still ahead of them. They were grateful for what God accomplished, but their joy was not centered on their present reality alone because much of that was unchanged. Instead, they 
set their hope on things to come. The people knew that when they finished rebuilding the wall, God didn't say, well, glad that's done. We're finished here now. They knew that His greatest provision, their hope, was yet to come. And that was a big part of their joy. And that's why the songs that they sang, it says, could be heard from a a long way away. And you can imagine it. These two great choirs going around on top of the wall, singing and then coming together in unison at the house of God, the temple rebuilt as the, the choirs merged into one. And then all of the assembly came together and sang with those choirs. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Now I want you to see how that heart of worship continues through their obedience in the following verses. Look at verse 44. And on that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather them into from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served, For they who performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times they were leaders of singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave portions due to the singers and gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites. And the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. What's being described here is a response of the people in the presence of an attitude of worship. Nehemiah moved straight from that rejoicing of the people to what they are doing as acts of obedience and fulfilling what the law required of them. And I don't believe that that is unintentional. I think Nehemiah puts these together very purposefully. He talks about how they offered their first fruits and their tithes. This how they gave willingly and cheerfully. If you'll look at verse 44, it says they rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. It says in verse 47 how they gave portions due to the singers and the gatekeepers. Their obedience was so closely connected to their worship because, listen to this, obedience is worship. Obedience is worship. In fact, the life you live is your greatest expression of your worship. Our lips can deceive us, but our lives don't lie. They reveal what is most exalted in our heart. See, not all of us are gifted to sing like Mark and Meredith and the choir did this morning. I don't know about you, but I often listen to them and their voices and think, man, I wish I could sing like that. But here's something we need to understand. There is nothing more lovely to the years of the God we serve than a life of humble and faithful obedience. Which is precisely why when when Paul writes to the Romans, he urges them, you know this verse, present your bodies as a, a living and holy sacrifice, right? In other words, surrender your life in obedience to Christ. Why? Because as he goes on to say, that is your spiritual act of worship. The life you live 
is your greatest expression of your worship. So go ahead. Just ask yourself. When people look at my life, what do I reveal to them about who or what I worship? What do they see as most exalted in my life? It's another good question to ask because we can say all the right things, but our lips deceive us. Our lives will not lie. Your life is your greatest expression of worship. What's most highly exalted for you? Now, as you think about this scene in Jerusalem, the choirs accompanied with these instruments of praise and thanksgiving, this great assembly that is now gathered around the temple, the the house of God, the choirs continuing to sing and everyone joining with them. It says in our passage that that the women and the children, what they're trying to say here is the whole families were involved in this. This was all the people, young and old alike, People are rejoicing at the privilege that they have to to give of their best, their first fruits in service to the people that are acting in ministry. It says they rejoiced in what the priests and the Levites are doing. They gave thanks to what the singers were singing as they participated together through giving and through songs of praise. It was a collective worship service that took many forms. But all the people, young and old, were involved. This was a celebration of God's past provision, but also on a future hope. Things that they knew were yet to come. Now, it's with that heart that I want us to move into our time of communion this morning. It was put intentionally at the end of our service so that we can take the principles that took place in our passage this morning and apply them right here and now to what we do at the Lord's table. And as we do, I want you to consider something with me to kind of set the stage based on what we've talked about this morning. Do you remember earlier in our study when we talked about how Daniel, who was one of the exiles in Babylon, had discovered some of the prophecy written by Jeremiah? You remember that? And it drew his interest because in that prophecy from Jeremiah, it talked about how the people who were in exile would return to repopulate Jerusalem. Daniel, being one of those people in exile, got real uh, interested in this, right? Because it involved him, perhaps. And so he began to to pray and ask God for understanding. And you remember that in response to that prayer, God sent the angel Gabriel to explain to Daniel what was about to happen. And one of the things he explained is that there would be a decree that would allow the people now held in captivity to return to Jerusalem. And as we've learned together, Nehemiah, was the one who received that decree and fulfilled what Jeremiah promised would happen. As he goes in and and, and rebuilds the city wall around Jerusalem. I believe that, that the people of God knew of these promises of God. And that's part of the reason that they celebrated. Because it was happening just like God said it would. But Jeremiah also spoke of things that were yet to come. And they would have heard that too. And we need to hear it this morning. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is in that same prophecy that Daniel would have discovered. That not only spoke of the decree 
that these people would ultimately fulfill. But a day yet future that he talks about beginning in chapter 31, verse 31. Look at that with me. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. It said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That being He provided, He cared for them like a husband would. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will be remembered no more. Now, if you'll remember that picture of what the people were doing in that time of celebration, they were fulfilling the Mosaic Law. They were carrying out the the sacrifices that it prescribed. But Jeremiah described today that there would be a new covenant that God would institute that was different, that would replace the one that they were currently following. It was a day yet future when it says that the, the law of God would not be written on stone, but actually on the hearts of His people. A day when they would walk in fellowship with God, knowing Him, not because of their sacrifice, but because of His. The sacrifice of God. A sacrifice that would be sufficient, as it says in the passage, to forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. See, the Mosaic Law had these sacrifices being repeated year after year after year. Why? Because they never were sufficient to remove the iniquity that stained their heart. They couldn't accomplish that because of their own effort. Something had to happen from God's perspective, to do for them what they could not do for themselves. To remove with one sacrifice for all time, for all those who put their faith in the one who made that sacrifice, Jesus Christ. See, what's important for us to understand is that that was a promise yet future for the Jewish people. That was a part of their joy because it was something that they hoped for. But for you and I, that's a present reality. We need to understand that what Jeremiah spoke of, at least in part, has been fulfilled in your life right now. Because if you'll recall what Jesus said when He celebrated the Lord's table with His disciples, He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And most assuredly, He looked back at that promise that Jeremiah made and He says, is being fulfilled. Because God is faithful to His promises. The promise made to Jeremiah was fulfilled in the life of Christ. It was a sacrifice to forgive our sins. Remember them no more. 
just as He promised it would. And so, like those in our passage, we should come to this table, this time of of praise and thanksgiving, with that same heart of joy, celebrating together as God's people the fulfillment of God's promise. Not only what He has done, but even what He continues to do. What What does Paul tell the Philippians? He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. When? Until the day that Christ comes. Which, by the way, is another one of His promises. By the way, that's the hope yet future. That is a part of our joy that we long for and look for. Because our hope is not based on the world in which we live. It is on the things yet to come. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to make an effort to incorporate the very heart of what took place in our passage into our celebration of communion this morning. And like they did, we're going to take a song that is familiar to all of us and we're going to incorporate it into how we celebrate communion this morning. So if Mark and the the team will come forward, let me tell you what this is going to look like. Before we sing... I'm going to ask uh, the men to come forward. And what they're going to do today that's different than what we've done before, okay, is they're going to hand out both of the elements, the bread and the cup. So as the plates come by, you take one of each and hold them, okay? And we're going to wait until all those go out to everybody, and then you'll just follow my lead as we walk through this together. But we will take each verse of the song that we're going to sing together to speak to what it is we're doing, just like we see in our passage this morning. So after I pray for us uh, in this time, uh, the first verse is one that I hope you will use to prepare your heart for what we're going to do together. You'll recall in our passage it says that the Levites and the priests went among the people and they purified themselves, the people, and the wall. In other words, they set their hearts right for the celebration of worship that was about to begin. And we need to do the same. So that's what we'll do as I begin our time in prayer. Let me do that now. Father, we do come before you wanting to set our hearts and our minds right so that we offer the praise and honor that is due your name for the things that you have accomplished just as you promised and namely the sacrifice of your son for the forgiveness of our sins that we might have eternity with you in that relationship that I know he looked to. That was the joy set before him, which allowed him to endure the cross, despise the shame, be seated at the right hand of God as they await the day to fulfill completely the promises that are still yet future. When we live in loving fellowship with our Creator and Redeemer for all eternity, That is the day we long for. So may we prepare our hearts as we come to celebrate that promise around your table this morning. Amen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This Thank you. 
uh, let me uh, help guide your time with God's Word. So just listen to these words as you uh, go before the Lord. Psalm 139. So, Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You discern my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful. It's too high. I cannot attain it. He goes on to say, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. He finishes the psalm by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in your everlasting way. Now before we uh, take the bread together, we're going to sing that second verse of this song and let it set your heart and mind on what you're about to do. And after that verse is over, let's take the bread together. In Christ alone who took on flesh all as of God in Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The encouragement there is to remember that your endurance in the difficulties of this life is your hope on the life yet to come, made possible because of his death on the cross on your behalf. So we're going to sing the next verse together and then we'll take the cup with each other.
1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. It's a promise. So what we'll do on this last verse is we're going to stand and we're going to sing with the passion that you believe these words are true because it is the joy, the hope of things yet to come. So everybody stand and we'll close with this. day in your week. Amen. Have a great day.